Amen. Lord, that's so incredible to think that we are your treasured possession. We are what you value above all else, that we truly are your beloved. And Lord, we pray as we go to your word right now, Lord, you minister to every heart that is here. Give us a deeper understanding of the calling you've placed upon our lives and help us, Lord, to be conformed more to your image. Lord, we love you, we praise you, we worship you. You are a great and an awesome God. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Go ahead and grab a seat. God bless you guys. Good to have you at Calvary Chapel. If you don't have a Bible, raise your hand because you will need one. Amen? We, have, we, we teach the Bible here, so raise your hand. You're going to need a Bible. And again, as I say every week, if, if you don't have a Bible at home or you like that one better, please take that as our gift because we would love for you to be in the Word more than just Sunday morning and Wednesday night. Amen? Amen? That was weak. Are you guys asleep? All right. Praise the Lord. All right. All right. We're continuing 1 Corinthians chapter 16. If you have your Bibles, continuing our verse-by-verse study through the entire New Testament. And again, we're going to take a few minutes because we're going to close up 1 Corinthians, this letter that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth this morning. And as we do, we're going to see the 16 marks of a mature believer. But before that, I want to just give us again a background of what's been happening so far so we understand the heart of the letter. Paul is writing this letter to a church that he had founded five years earlier, a church that was very mature spiritually, a church that was walking with God, a church that was impacting the world around it. And then word came to him that they had started to compromise in their faith and started becoming more and more like the world. Does that sound like the church today? More and more like the world. More and more being impacted by the world than having an impact on it. And so as Paul receives word, this is not true, no doubt, of the entire church, but a good portion of it, that they again are getting their eyes on the idols of the world and getting their eyes on the things that were going on around them, the philosophers who were teaching vain things. And before you knew it, they were doubting everything that the Bible taught and they were living life for today. And one group of philosophers was called the Epicurean philosophers. And these guys believed in no resurrection. And they had a saying, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. And it was creeping into the church where they began to even doubt the resurrection. So they began to chase after philosophies of men. They began to fall into sexual immorality. They started to to mix idol worship with the worship of God. They were using their liberties even when it stumbled a brother in Christ. And this entire letter has been an exhortation from Paul telling them to get their eyes back on God. Can I tell you that one of the reasons you and I need to be in fellowship is that we will keep our eyes on God. Amen? So we need to be in the Word every single day. That's why, as I said, you've heard me say it before, read the book, don't wait for the movie, amen? We need to be in God's Word every day because God's Word keeps our eyes where they need to be. If you want to know the God of the Word, you must know the Word of God. And so he's exhorting them to get their eyes back where they need to be, to turn away from the idols of this world. They were caught up in sexual immorality. Their marriages were falling apart. And again, it sounds so much like the church today. And then finally, last the last chapter that we saw, that, that the resurrection itself was even being doubted. Now, that to me is the ultimate sign of a church that is completely falling away from God. Because if you do not believe in the resurrection, you are not a Christian. Amen? Because without the resurrection, there is no salvation. Jesus rose from the dead. He suffered and died, but He rose from the dead. That we, that triumphing over sin and death, if there is no resurrection, there is no salvation. All other gods are dead. All other gods that all of the men serve are still in the ground. We can dig up their bones, but you go to the tomb of Jesus and He's not there anymore. And sadly, the church was entertaining thoughts about the the resurrection not even being true. Well, is it necessary? I've talked to people that tell me they're Christians that say it doesn't matter whether or not Jesus rose from the dead. Yes, it does. It is a non-negotiable of the Christian faith. And it's so important that you and I understand the first, the truth of the resurrection, as he talked about in the first part of Corinthians. One of the most provable things that's ever happened in history. It only took two witnesses to prove a fact back then. There were over 500 witnesses to Jesus' resurrection. The fact that the apostles lived martyred lives and were set apart to God. Just, again, if you want to know, grab the tape on the truth of the resurrection. Paul then talked about the power of the resurrection. 
Because Paul was the greatest enemy of the Christian church. His name was Saul of Tarsus. He was attacking Christians. His desire was, he was zealous for a lie. And there are a lot of people zealous for a lie today. Zeal does not mean truth. You can be zealous for something that is not true. The guys who flew into the Twin Towers were zealous. But they were zealous for a lie. Amen? And you know what? We need to be zealous for the truth, passionate for the truth, because we know the truth, the true and living God. And the power of the resurrection is it can transform the life of an individual. You know, there are many great miracles. You know, I've seen God heal people of cancer. I've seen God do great and awesome things. There are miracles throughout the Bible, but I believe the greatest miracle of all is the transformation of a sinner's life into someone who is holy and set apart to God. Amen? The greatest miracle of all is your life's been changed. The greatest miracle of all is you're not the person you used to be, and again, you truly are a new creation in Christ, and you're <laughs> heaven-bound, as DC Talk would say. You're going to heaven, and your best friend is the creator of the universe. It's the greatest miracle of all. So there's the power of the resurrection, the importance of the resurrection. If Jesus is not risen, our faith is worthless. He is not God. Our sins are not forgiven. We have no hope of heaven. And again, it's essential for salvation. And then he talked about the fruit of the resurrection, that since Jesus is is risen he is God he is holy our sins have been paid for our lives have been transformed and we do have the promise of heaven and then finally in chapter 15 we looked at the promise of the resurrection to come I'm so thankful that this isn't it how about you amen you know so many people today are living for today but the Bible says that you know this life is passing away it's but a vapor and we're going to be dead a lot longer than we're alive and you know what? Eternity is a lot longer than the brief amount of time we spend walking around on this earth in these frail, corrupted bodies. And praise God, as we saw last week, that this corruption is going to put on incorruption. And this, this body and this frailty that is, that is mortal will put on immortality. And I will spend, and you will spend, if you're a born-again believer, eternity in heaven with Almighty God, where gold is asphalt. Where, where there is no more pain, there is no more suffering, there is no more death, and we're going to see our Savior face to face, and we're going to be around His throne forevermore. Can we have enough focus on heaven? I say no. I have people tell me we're so heavenly minded, people are so heavenly minded, they're no earthly good, and as you've heard me say, we're so earthly minded that we're no heavenly good. I think we need more focus on heaven, a more of a focus on eternity, a reality again that you and I are going to live forever with Almighty God and right now counts for eternity. Amen? And you know what? As we saw last week, it can happen in a twinkling of an eye. We talked about the rapture last week, and if you want to know about that, grab the tape. Because again, the Bible tells us very clearly that God has not appointed us unto wrath, and that when... That rapture takes place, that God's righteous judgment will come upon the earth for a seven year period of time. And at the end of that time, we will return with the Lord to rule and reign with Him for a thousand years upon the earth. It's called the millennial reign. Now I bring all that up to just again, to say these are all the things that he's impressing on the, heart of the hearts of the Corinthians. He talks about eternity because he wants them to see how significant the way they were living their lives was. Because what we do now does matter. You know when they tell you what happens here stays here, that's a lie. See in the Vegas commercials? What happens here stays here. You know, not, it's bad enough to be called Sin City and now that's your, lo- your motto. What happens here stays here. No it doesn't. Because we will all be accountable before Almighty God one day, amen? But praise God that by the shed blood of Jesus Christ, I've been forgiven, and I'm going to heaven, and so are you if you've given your life to the Lord. And you are saints, set apart ones to serve God. Now as he comes to this last chapter, after talking about heaven and the rapture, Paul kind of comes down to earth, if you will, having exhorted them, and now he, he starts to give them just some more practical things that they, need to do, that they should be doing as believers, We're going to see his heart as he shares with them. He's going to talk to them about just their day-to-day lives as they walk with the Lord. And Paul's, again, having exhorted them already in light of the fact that, again, through Christ, they've they've triumphed over sin and death. He exhorts them to be steadfast in their walk with God. That's how the last chapter ended, to be immovable. But now he's going to speak to them in more practical terms. And as we look at these, these final verses of the chapter of the book here, we're going to see first just his heart for them to give and minister to others. You know, since we've been born again, how should we be different? What should be different about my life than someone who doesn't know God? Number one, as we're going to see, we should have a heart to give. Because everything you have belongs to whom? To the Lord. This is God's shirt I'm wearing. He lets me borrow it, but it's His. Amen? 
I mean, I live in God's house, I'm driving God's car, it's God's stuff, it's God's bank account, it all belongs to the Lord. And you know, if it's your first time here, ask anybody, we don't, I, don't, I will never ask you for your money. You know why? Because God doesn't need your money. Our Father's got a cattle on a thousand hills, and you know what, where God guides, God provides, and He provides for us just fine, and we will never pass an offering plate in this church. Why? Because I don't want anybody to ever give for the wrong motive. But, as Christians, we should give out of a love for God. Not because somebody's twisting our back, not because of some hyped up fundraiser, but because we love the Lord and it's an act of worship as we're going to see this morning. But also we're going to see Paul's travel plans. And when you read these sometimes, you think, why is this even in the Bible? Paul's going to tell you his travel plans to finish up the chapter. But I believe as we look at Paul's travel plans, we get a glimpse of Paul's heart. And as we get a glimpse of Paul's heart, we're going to see the marks of a mature believer in Christ. So let's begin in verse 1, looking at the 16 marks of a mature believer. If you take notes, you know, it's 1 Corinthians 16. There's 16 marks of a mature believer. At the end, I'll go over them again if you miss one. But let's take a look here as he's closing out this letter to this church in Corinth. He was outside of God's will. He's exhorting them to get right with God. They're people that he loves very much, a church that he planted. Let's hear his heart. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I have given orders to the churches of Galatia, Galatia you must also do. Now, as he, he had instructed them previously, and they, had, they already knew, that that's what the now concerning, in the original language it speaks about something they already knew about. And what he's saying to them, now concerning this collection for the saints. Now what collection is he talking about? Paul was getting a collection together for the Christians in Jerusalem. If you remember the birth of the church in Acts chapter 2, there were 3,000 souls that were added to the church in a single day. The Lord told the, the believers when He ascended into heaven to go and wait. The Holy Spirit fell upon them. And that 120 turned to 3,000 overnight. And as that church grew, many of them stayed there and settled there. And they took all their belongings and they shared them with one another. And they were very generous with each other. But then a famine has now hit in Jerusalem. And all the believers there are struggling. And they're, and they're literally hungry. And so Paul's heart was to go to the other churches and say, Hey, you know what? The guy, our, our brothers and sisters in Jerusalem are hurting. Let's gather a collection together. And when I go to Jerusalem, I will bring the funds to, t- to care for their physical needs. Now what I love about this is that while this church is suffering, you see Paul's heart the heart of a pastor. Because Paul not only preached the gospel, he not only planted churches, he not only discipled future pastors and evangelists, and not only corrected churches when they were outside of God's will, but he had a burden to minister to the physical needs of those who were hurting. That is a pastor's heart. It's more than, we are to, I'm going to stand before Almighty God one day for every word I shared with you when standing right here. And believe me, I don't take that lightly. Every time I pray, Lord, for the sake of your people, move this imperfect marred vessel out of the way and let it be your words and not mine. But I want to say this, that a pastor's heart is first to equip the saints for the work of the ministry, but it's also to minister to the physical needs of the body. Because you know what? I love you guys. The Lord loves you guys. And when you hurt, we as a body should hurt with you. We weep with those who weep and we rejoice with those who rejoice. And Paul, with a pastor's heart, saw the church in Jerusalem was suffering and he had a burden to say, guys, let's take a collection and minister to them. You know, the ultimate example of this, of course, is Jesus, who often not only ministered to the spiritual needs, but the physical needs of people. Often he would heal somebody first and then share the gospel. Often he would sit them all down and he would feed them with loaves and fishes, and then share the gospel. Often he would, you know, again, go and heal somebody's daughter who had died, or touch a blind person, and again, it was ministering to the physical needs so that he might minister to them spiritually. And I believe as the body of Christ that we should do that. We should minister to each other's physical needs as well. So mark number one of a mature believer is a heart to minister to the physical needs of others. Not just, again, being so... Again, we are to be spiritual. We're born again. But one of the fruits of the Holy Spirit is love. And if we love people, we're going to minister to their physical needs. You know what? I I define this heart to minister to others as someone who is others-focused. Who's not selfish with his time or money, but sees both his 
finances and giftings as belonging to God and are ready and willing to use them for the Lord to minister to others. Now, I'm not just talking about finances. Can I tell you that some of the things that minister to people the most is just somebody being sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit and maybe going over to their house and bringing them a meal, going over to somebody's house and, you know, finding out someone's had surgery and just cleaning their house for them. Or, you know, I I was blown away one time that there was a guy in our church who, who had had major surgery when I was in San Jose, and our pastor had a heart that we went over there and mowed his lawn and did his laundry, and all the pastors were doing that. And, I, and you know what? This guy was blown away. It's, it's a message in action. Amen? It's the love of God. So the heart of a mature believer isn't just somebody who feeds on the Word, which we should do, but then our lives are transformed. We have a heart to minister to the physical needs of others. Again, reaching out to them when we see someone who's hurting, making a meal for someone who is sick, mowing someone's lawn, fixing the car of a single mom in the church, someone who's available and willing to do anything, the Lord would bring His way. Now I want to say this, that while the body of Christ is absolutely called to help those who are truly in need, the church must discern who the truly needy are. Now it's interesting, we just teach you through Deuteronomy, and we just touched on this on Wednesday night, and nothing happens by chance in the kingdom of God. But the Bible tells us that those who are in need are the orphans and the widows and those who are unable to work due to illness or infirmity. And that's it. This is reaching out to those who are hurting, not those who are lazy. Amen? And I can't tell you how many calls we get at the church office. Yeah, me and my old lady are down at the beach and we're just kind of hanging out and someone stole our stuff and... You think you could hook us up with some money? Uh, no. That ain't going to happen. Here's the reality. It's all God's money, and I'll give $5,000 to help somebody who's walking with God in their relationship with the Lord to minister to them, but I don't want to give 50 cents to help prop up somebody's sin. Amen? And so they need to be accountable, and they need to be, you know, it's okay to ask somebody, bro, if they're lazy, we don't want to reward that behavior. The man says, a man, the Bible says, a man who does not work shall not eat. The Bible says a lazy man will say, there's a lion in the street. There's a lion in the street. I can't go to work today, right? And so there's always an excuse, and God's design and plan is he does provide for us, but he's given you healthy hands and healthy feet and a healthy mind. And again, we are to minister to one another's needs. And certainly, when two parents are working and, you know, things can happen. You know, you can have cars break, people get laid off. And that's, we do need to minister to those people. But if someone's sitting around eating bonbons, watching soap operas, they need to get off their duff. Amen? That, laziness is a sin. And it's okay to say that. Sometimes people struggle with that, but it is. Now look what he says here about the giving. This collection for the saints. Again, reaching out to those who are hurting due to famine. I have given orders to the churches. You must also do. Now, it's interesting. He gave a command, not a request, to give. Now, I want to make this real clear. Giving should be done with a cheerful heart. The Bible, the word for God loves a cheerful giver, the word there is hilarion. It's where you get the word hilarious. So literally, giving should be something that's done with great joy, and it's a, as we're going to see in a moment, it's an act of worship, giving back to God from all He's given you. If you're giving and your attitude isn't right, don't bother. Don't give if you feel like somebody made you give or someone put you in a corner. Don't give with the wrong motives. I'm going to give to God so He'll give me back some stuff. And isn't that every TV evangelist, right? You see these guys on TV? I sent them a $1,000 love pledge, and then I won the lottery, right? You've seen that stuff on TV? As everybody's sending their seed offering. That's not biblical giving. Biblical giving is, Lord, it's all yours. And Lord, I'm giving this to, that you're the priority in my life. And so he commands them to give. Again, it's God's heart that we would be those who give. Verse 2. On the first day of the week, let each one of you lay something aside. Now, I love this because... The debate about, you know, should we meet, and it's interesting because we're standing in this gym, but should we have church on Saturday or Sunday? Or, first of all, every day is the Lord's day. Amen? Any day, every day is the same in God's eyes today. But the first century church met on the first day of the week. When is the first day of the week? Sunday. Now, why did they meet on Sunday? Because Jesus rose from the dead on Sunday. The resurrection radically changed the church and the resurrection became the focal point of the evangelism that they did and the focal point of why they came together. There would be no reason for church if there was no resurrection. Amen? 
And so they met on the first day of the week, Sunday. And in Revelation 1, Sunday is referred to as the Lord's Day. It's the day Jesus rose from the dead. It's also the day that the Holy Spirit was given to the church in Acts chapter 2. Then it says, let each one of you lay something aside. When they gave, he said, they're to give systematically. What I mean by that is that it was something pre-planned. You know, they weren't tipping God on Sunday. You know, the plate comes by, what do I got? Right? I got eight bucks, there it is, right? You know, it's not tipping God as the plate goes by. It was something where they, in their own home, had prayed about it, had sought the Lord, and they had made a plan of how they were going to give, and when they came, they were ready to give. And so he says here, let each of you, on the first day of the week, lay something aside. So I love this. So when, they, when did they give? When they came together on the first day of the week to study the Word and to worship. So where do we get this example of us giving when we come to church? It's from, right, it's from the Bible. And so when they would come together, they were to set aside things to give, and to give again to minister to those in the body who are suffering, and also for the furtherance of the gospel. Now look what he also says here. Storing up as he may prosper. Giving was not only systematic in that it was thought out beforehand, but it was also in proportion to what God has given us. I told some of you on Wednesday night when you were here, when I was a little kid, my dad and mom taught me about giving or tithing as a little boy. I'm a, I'm a PK, for those who don't know, that's a preacher's kid. I grew up in a Christian home, and my, dad, my allowance was 25 cents, and my dad would always give me two dimes and a nickel. Now you know how old I am, all right? But I remember I used to go to the little green, Johnny's little green store and get packs of baseball cards, only a nickel apiece. And the temptation was to buy five, you know, because you could get... But the, my dad taught me at a very young age to give unto the Lord of the first part of what I've been given. And so I'd buy 20 cents worth of baseball cards, and then when I went to church on Sunday, and they, they passed out this little white church with a slit in the top, I'd put my little nickel in there. And it was a great lesson for me to learn to give proportionally to what's been given to me. Now, if I'm still giving God a nickel a week, that's not good. Amen? God's blessed me with more than a quarter, so I should be giving Him more than a nickel. Amen? And so, you know, and God, again, I just want to share with you, don't, I want this to come out wrong, but what God put in my heart many years ago, this is just your pastor, and I'm not saying you have to do this, but for me, when I got paid, I was working a full-time job, most of you for many years, and I still tie it to this day, of course, but the first check I would do is I'd write my deposit, and right underneath that I wrote out the check for giving. Because I wanted to give God first. I didn't want to give Him what was left. I believe that's true of our time. We should give God the best of our time. We should give God the first of our finances, not the rest. Not the rest of our time. I've got 9,000 things to do. If I've got any time left, I'll give it to God. I've got all these things I need to do. If I've got anything left, I'll give it to God. We need to give it to God first, not last. Amen? He gave to us everything, and all we have belongs to Him. And so he says, lay something aside, storing up as He may prosper, that there be no collections when I come. Now I love this, that Paul didn't want any more collections when he got there. Paul said, when I come, I don't want any more collections, because I don't want anybody to be manipulated to give because I show up. I don't want them to see me and go, oh, i got to give, Paul's here, oh man, you know. He said, no, I want them to give from their heart. I don't want them to be manipulated. I don't want there to be, you know, we don't want to put thermometers on the wall and have a fundraiser and bring in Bozo the Clown, and we're not doing that, right? He said, we're not going to have, you know, matching funds Sunday or anything like that. He said, you know what, have people give from their heart as they've heard from the Lord, and then when I come, no more collections, because I don't want people to be motivated by anything but their love for God. You know what, guys? I don't want you ever to give here out of any motivation but your love for God. Let me just, and this will even let you off the hook, I don't even know which one of you guys give what. I don't know. And I don't want to. You know what? And I, and I don't write the checks around here. I know where every dime goes. I know we, for missions and for the radio program and for everything that we do, I know where every dime goes. But you know what? I want to be above reproach, much like Paul was. And you know, I don't, I don't want to really know who gives what because I really don't want to be tempted to treat anybody differently. Like our flesh might be tempted, amen? I look at you all the same, I love you all the same, and it's between you and the Lord. And you give as God moves on your heart. The only time I ask if someone gives is when I'm praying about putting somebody into leadership. Because I believe everyone who's in leadership in this church absolutely must be someone who gives. Because if they don't give, it tells me a lot about their heart. 
And my heart's in track with God. I'm investing in that which is eternal. So giving is to also be an act of worship. Because, again, for God so loved the world that He gave, and when they came, it was something that they meditated in their own heart, and when they gave, it was an act of worship to the Lord. Lord, this is Yours. Not out of contrition, not because someone was twisting their arm, but out of, worship, out of a heart of worship for God. So mark number two of a mature believer is sees giving as an act of worship. Again, out of love for God. Verse three and four. And when I come, whomever you approve by your letters, I will send a bearer gift to Jerusalem. But if it is fitting that I go also, they will go with me. Now money was to be handled honestly. And what did Paul say? Paul said, you know what? You guys are going to gather together a collection for Jerusalem, and you're, you are going to decide who's going to deliver that. You're going to raise up some people within your own body, and that person is going to go with me to Jerusalem and bring your gift and give it to the believers. Why? Because again, Paul wanted to be above reproach. Paul did not want to have his hands on it in any way. Paul had a heart to see the people ministered to, but Paul was a man who also wanted to be accountable. And he said, whomever you approve. He didn't say whoever I pick, right? Pick all your cronies and then you got bad news. He said, whoever you pick to, to deliver the money. So Paul's heart again was that money was to be handled honestly. And he wanted them to have somebody who would, again, make him accountable. And believers appointed by the Corinthian believers, not by Paul. So mark number three of a mature believer, one who desires to make himself accountable to others. You know what? Christianity is not for the Lone Ranger. Amen? We are not to be off on our own trying to serve. You know, that doesn't work because you don't see it anywhere in the Bible. It says, forsake not the gathering of yourselves together. I don't get it when people get so spiritual they don't need church anymore. I've met people like this, many of them. And I'm like, what Bible are you reading? And not only that, I love to come to church. Amen? I love to come. I love to worship. I love to fellowship. I love that you guys use your gifts to minister to me. This is a time of refreshing and encouragement. It's not a have to, it's a get to. And my prayer would be that all of us would come, not because, well, it was pretty bad this week. I better go get some brownie points with God, right? Better go to church and get a little line on my side. I've kind of blown it, right? And I know a lot of people that, again, that they, they church is a marking off a list as opposed to coming and being in a place of fellowship and growing in our relationship with the Lord. The word there for gift in verse 3 is where you get the word grace. And I love that. Because the gift was given out of grace, out of love, with a heart to reach out to others. Paul's heart was not only to meet the Jewish Christians' needs, but there was another motive for why he did this. Because prior to Jesus' resurrection, how did the Jews and Gentiles feel about each other? They were enemies. And now they're all Christians. And Paul's heart was, here are the Jews and here are the Gentiles who used to be enemies and my heart is to bridge the gap between the Jews and Gentiles. And so I know, here's my heart and no doubt God spoke this to him, but he went and said, let's get a collection from the Gentiles and let's bring it to the Jews. And let them see that we are brothers in Christ. That while we were once enemies, we were once on opposite sides, we're all one in Christ now. Amen? Isn't that great that when we have Jesus in common, we have everything in common? It doesn't matter what your nationality is, what your background is, where you grew up, what your skin color, it's irrelevant. Man looks on the outward appearance and God looks on the, on the heart. And God looks on our heart and His heart was, you know what, I want to bring unity to the body. I want the Jews to see that the Gentiles love them and that they have a heart for them and that we're in this together. And you know, one of my passions for here in Santa Cruz, the city that so desperately needs Jesus, amen? Santa Cruz, Holy Cross. And my prayer is that, you know what, that God would turn this place if He tarries into the Bible Belt and He can do it, amen? And people laugh when I say that, but you know what? God can do anything. He put the stars into the sky. He can turn this place into the Bible Belt. But it's got to start in our heart, amen? God can radically transform this place. But one of the passions I have is that the churches in town that love God, that we be unified. I'm not, we're not competing with any other church in town. That's not my heart. People come to me and say, Pastor Dave, I go to this church on Sunday. I come to your church on Wednesday because I love the Old Testament. Great! I'm not asking you to be a member here. I don't want you to join anything. You go where you're being fed. 
and stay there and be active there. And it's okay. And if you want to go there sometimes, that's fine. Praise the Lord. You know why? Because it doesn't matter which lifeboat they get into as long as they get to shore. Amen? And we are all on the same team. And I pray for the other pastors here in town. And I pray for the churches in this town that are looking for a pastor right now. And you know what? My heart is to see their church grow and flourish and people's lives be transformed. It's not about building Calvary Chapel, but building the kingdom of God. Amen? And that was Paul's heart. was saying, look, let's be unified. And how are we going to do that? Let me bring a collection down to them and let me deliver it to the Jews so they'll see that the Gentiles love them and have a heart for them and have a burden for them. Mark number four of a mature believer. A desire to see the body of Christ unified. He desires to build the kingdom of God, not his own denomination. Again, doesn't matter which lifeboat they get into as long as they get to shore. Verse 5, now I will come to you when I pass through Macedonia, for I am passing through Macedonia. And it may be that while I remain or even spend the winter with you, that you may send me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not wish to see you now on the way, but I hope to stay a while with you if the Lord permits. If you underline things in your Bible, underline those four words in verse 7. You know what? Paul had a plan. Paul had a design. Paul had a desire. But the key words to these three verses are, if the Lord permits. You know what? I believe that we should pray, seek God's heart, and have a plan for our lives. But we never should allow our plan to be inflexible to the leading and the will of Almighty God. Amen? Paul's heart was, I'm going. This is my plan, if the Lord wills. If that's what the Lord wants, then that's exactly what we're going to do. The Bible says a, man, a man's heart plans his way, but the Lord orders his steps. In James chapter 4 it says this, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell, and make a profit. Whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow, for what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. Make plans, but be flexible to God's leading. I have daily plans, but they're always open to God's leading, to those divine appointments that come my way. You know, I've shared this with you guys many times. My plan and my desire and my heart is to pastor this church until I'm either raptured or I die. So you are stuck with me. Okay? If you don't like me, go find another. There's other good churches in town. God bless you. All right? But at the same time, I want to say this. I want to say this. I should never be so adamant as to, to say that God can't do with my life whatever He wants. If God wants to send me to Beijing, China tomorrow, then I'm going. Because I know my heart is to be here with you. And if it's up to me, I'll be here forever. But I also, and neither should you, we should never say, this is what I'm going to do. We should say, if the Lord wills, this is what I'm going to do. It's interesting, because some of you don't know this, I came up here in 1996 thinking I was going to, to Fremont to pastor a church. Talked to Don McClure in San Jose, I'd been a youth pastor for 10 years in Southern California. I come up here thinking I'm going to Fremont, and the first Sunday morning I'm sitting in service, supposed to have lunch with Pastor Don, to go out the following week and start a church in Fremont with 75 or so people. They're having a home study, and while I'm sitting in church, they bring up the assistant pastor, Tim Brown, and say he's going to Fremont. Now, I just moved. I sold my house. What? I transferred. Things unchanged, right? I'm not going to Fremont. Now, blessed are the flexible, amen? Because, praise God, God knew Santa Cruz was going to be the place all along, amen? And so it's learning that, you know, we don't say, I could have said, oh man, I thought I was going to free, I'm moving, back. that's it, I quit. Wait a minute, okay Lord, what, what's the answer then? I ended up staying six years in San Jose as the youth pastor and then coming over here and we planted a church a few years back and praise God, because God's plans are perfect. And you know what, our hearts should be, Lord, your will be done, because your will's always best, amen? If I'd gone to Fremont, I wouldn't have met you wonderful people. All right? So praise God that God had another plan. So Mark number five of a mature believer. He submits his plans, his life, his direction to the will of God. To say submitted to the will of God. 
Can I, and I want to ask you a question. Think about this. Do you really want the will of God for your life no matter what? Pray about that. You know, a lot of times we say we want God's will until he tells us we've got to do something we don't want to. Lord, I want your will, but not that. I've heard people say, Lord, I don't want to pray for God's will. He might send me on the mission field or something. Right? You know what? When you fall in love with the Lord, he makes his will your heart. Doing his will is a get-to and not a have-to. When you're delighting in the Lord, he gives you the desires of your heart because he makes his heart your heart. You know what? I am the most blessed man on this planet because there's nothing in the world that I would rather be than the pastor of Calvary Chapel Santa Cruz. You know why? Because this is what God's called me to do, and this is the greatest joy and blessing I could, ever, I could ever even imagine. I wouldn't trade this job to be president of the United States. I wouldn't. I'm so blessed to be here. And you know why? Because it's God's plan, and when you're in God's plan and in God's will, it's a get-to, and it's a joy, and it's a blessing. Verse 8 and 9. But I will tarry in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a great and effective door is open to me, and there are many adversaries. You've got to love the way Paul talks. Because what does Paul say? Paul was in Ephesus when he wrote this letter in the midst of this godless pagan nation filled with idol worship. And why wasn't he going to come immediately to Corinth? Because God had opened a door for ministry in Ephesus. If you ever want to read about it, it's in Acts 19. And while Paul's there, this was, yeah, a lot of fun. What happened was that Paul did go in and boldly speak in the synagogue for three months. And Paul did reach out and lay hands on people that were baptized in the Holy Spirit. But also, there was a huge riot, and everybody wanted to kill Paul. And Paul said, oh, there's an open door for me. Paul viewed, Paul viewed adversaries and tribulation as an opportunity for the gospel. Every time Paul went through a difficult time, he went, sweet, here's going to be an opportunity to share Jesus with somebody. He'd get arrested and be chained up to, to, to guards, and he'd say, captive audience, you know what, you need Jesus, man, let me tell you. I got you for six hours. Where are you going, right? And, and Paul's heart was everything that he went through, every difficulty, every trial, every struggle was appointed by God. And he just say, praise the Lord. And look what he says here. He said, I just love this. There's a great and effective door open to me, and there are many adversaries. Well, those many adversaries was the whole city. At one point, he shared Jesus with them, and many of these people that are into witchcraft, they all brought their books, and they set them on fire, 50,000 shekels worth. And, the, and as you know the story, that the idol, the guys who made the idols, the silversmiths, got all whipped up. Man, this guy's blowing our gig. No one's going to buy idols anymore. So they whipped up a riot, and everybody came against Paul, and Paul thought, this is great. They're all gathered together in one place. I can talk to all of them. And you've got to love his heart. Because again, Paul was one who saw it as an open door. If you're going through a difficult time right now, can I tell you that it's an open door for the gospel? If you've got an illness, if you've, got a, if you've lost your job, if you're, if you're struggling in your marriage, you know, whatever's going on, it's an opportunity for God to be glorified if you will just let him. Because does God know what you're going through? Does he love you? He loves you so much he'd rather die than live without you. You are his treasured possession. So what you're going through can be used for God's glory if you will simply let him do it. They were shouting for hours, great is the goddess Diana. They wanted to kill Paul, and Paul wasn't moved at all. Paul said, you know what? My best friend created the universe. I'm not sweating you. Paul said, you know what? You can't threaten me with heaven. Amen? Paul said in Philippians 1.21, for me to live is Christ and to die is what? It's gain. So, you know what? The, the worst thing the world can do to me is the best thing that can happen to me. Amen? And so Paul's heart was, look, it's okay. You know what? There's a great door opened here. I got all kinds of enemies. It's wonderful. What a great opportunity. I want to come to you guys, but I'm not done yet. You know what? When I left, Santa, left to come to Santa Cruz, my pastor, Don McClure in San Jose, gave me great advice for the whole time I was there. But one of the things he told me, he said, Dave, make sure that you know you're called. Because if you know you're called, if you don't know you're called, the first problem you have, you're going to have two problems. You know, if you go to Santa Cruz and it's difficult, the first problem that comes up, you're going to say, was I even supposed to be here to begin with? But if you know you're called... The first problem that comes along is God's problem because he brought you there. Amen? And you know what? When we were at the vet's hall, those of you go back to those days, there were some, you know, we'd show up and they'd be having a lesbian play in the middle of the room. We're supposed to be having church. That's kind of a problem. People are chanting to the moon God. They're making us meet out in the parking lot sometimes. But you know what? God brought us there. God's in control and it's okay. Amen? And so praise the Lord. And Paul's heart was, hey, there's adversaries, but God is faithful. If you know you're called, it's God's problem. You know what? 
Remember this, if you struggle with calling, that a burden is the spawning ground of a calling. And there's two extremes in the church today, where people sit around so afraid to do anything, they don't do anything. Then there are others who don't pray and just go full speed and wonder why it didn't work out. You know what? Wait upon the Lord when you hear from God, go full speed. Amen? We need more people like that in the church today. Can I tell you, as your pastor, there's so many more things I would love to see us do, but I will never draft anybody to do anything. It frustrates people that I won't. People say, why don't you just tell me what to do? Because I will never tell you what to do. You know why? Because if I tell you, you're doing it for me. Let the Lord tell you, and then you'll do it for Him. Amen? And if He calls you, He will sustain you. If I call you, i got to keep propping you up, and I don't have time for that. If i got to call you every week, are you sure you're coming to children's ministry today? Come on, please. I don't want to do that. I want people who feel called by God, who know that the Lord is the one who's drawn them in. May we move by the Lord and be led by His Spirit, not by our circumstances or worldly opposition. May we not run away from difficulty. You know what? When difficulty happens, my dad and I were just talking about this on the phone. When difficulty happens, I, one word comes to mind, charge. Praise God. Okay, God's going to do something great. Amen? I talk to senior pastors all the time, and when I talk to them, they go through difficulty, as I do sometimes as well. And you know what? There's things we can share with each other. And when we share, it's just, you know what? This just means God's going to do great stuff. You know, when people in your own church attack you, when people spread lies about you, when they go out to lunch and have past, roast Pastor Dave, you know, those kinds of things. It's okay, because God's in control, and it doesn't matter. Because I know that God has called me, and I know that God is faithful. And we should not be moved by our opposition. So mark number six of a, a mature believer. He sees trials and difficulty as an opportunity for ministry. Trials and difficulty are opportunities for ministry. Verse 10. And if Timothy comes, see that he may be with you without fear. For he does the work of the Lord as I also do. Therefore let no one despise him, but send him on his journey in peace, that he may come to me. For I am waiting, him, waiting for him with the brethren. Now Timothy was, quote, Paul's son in the faith. Paul, Timothy was a, a young man who had a Jewish mom and a Greek dad. He submitted to circumcision as an adult so that he might be able to minister to Jews. In Philippians 2, Paul said of Timothy, For I have no one like-minded as a son with his father. He served with me in the gospel. And he told Timothy, Don't let them despise your youth. He was a young man of integrity. He was, he was not as outgoing as Paul was. He was humble. He was quiet. But you know what? He didn't have to be Paul. And you know what? I feel like there's a, a, a dozen guys here that I view as, as Timothys to me, who I love to invest my life in. And I, I repeatedly tell them, they don't have to be me. And I didn't have to be Pastor Don McClure in San Jose. You know, I'll never forget the first time he asked me to teach for him on a Sunday morning in front of 2,000 people. And I'm, I'm the furthest thing from him. Have you ever heard Don McClure on the radio... We're like night and day. He talks slow. I don't, right? <laughs> and I remember thinking, i got to be like Pastor Don. And I remember the Lord just telling me, you know what, you need to be what I've called you to be. And that was Paul's heart for Timothy. Don't let them despise you because of your youth. You use the gift I've given you. You don't have to be like the person that's discipling you. You be like the Lord and what he's called you to be. Amen? And so Paul's heart was, here he is interceding for Timothy. Paul's here in Ephesians, surrounded by people who want him dead. And what's he doing in Ephesus? What's he doing? He's writing a letter saying, hey, when Timothy shows up, you treat him okay. You take care of him. He's my son in the faith. And I love his heart. Mark number seven of a mature believer. Disciples and intercedes for those who are younger in the faith. You know what? The Bible called us to make disciples, not, not converts. And we all should be being discipled, and be discipling others. There are always those who have not known the Lord as long as you have, and you can minister to them. And there are always those who are more mature in their faith than you are, and they can minister to you. I have those who even today I call and I seek counsel from, who disciple me, who minister to me. And then there are those who I love to invest my life in. I believe as Christians, that's exactly what should be happening. And that was certainly Paul's heart. Verse 12. Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urged him to come to you with the brethren, but he was quite unwilling to come at this time. However, he will come when he has a convenient time. Paul is an apostle. Paul tells Apollos to go, and Apollos says no. No, I actually love this because this gives them some insight into the fact that, you know, there's churches today that have what is called a hyper-shepherding movement. You ever heard of that? Some of you haven't. You know what it is? It's where your pastor tells you everything. Or all these leaders, they tell you what kind of car to buy, where to live, who you can date, all this stuff. That's not biblical. 
The Holy Spirit lives inside of you. Amen? Now, we're to seek godly counsel, but it's God who leads us. It's God who directs us. It's the Holy Spirit within our lives. And Paul didn't force Apollos to do anything. He says he urged him to go, and Apollos said, you know, I'm just not bearing witness to that. I'm staying here. I'll go down there later. Now, I also want to say this. Remember, Apollos was the guy who was preaching an incomplete gospel when he was in Corinth before. Remember that? He, didn't, he never heard of the resurrection. That's kind of a problem. And so he's preaching, and Aquila and Priscilla show up and give him, teach him a more excellent way, and now he's very bold. And now Paulus had this huge following in Corinth, and I love Paul's heart here. He was trying to send him back to Corinth, because yet again, he was trying to commend other Christians. He wasn't trying to compete with them. He could have felt threatened by Apollos. Well, Apollos is pretty popular down there. If I send him, they'll all follow him, and they won't have time for me anymore. And I want to be important, Right? But it wasn't his heart at all. And you know what? It grieves me in the body of Christ when people kept... We're not in competition, amen? We glorify only one, God alone. And Paul's heart was that he recommended him. So Mark number 8 of a mature believer, he commends others who were called, doesn't compete with them. Last verses here, we're going to see some final exhortations from Paul. Verse 13. He says, now these are last words of exhortation. Watch. Now why does he say watch? Watch for what? What do you think? What did he just talk about in the last chapter? The rapture. Watch. Be ready for Christ's return. Be looking up. You know what? As Christians, we should be living every day in anticipation that Christ could return at any moment. After watch, he says, watch. And then he says, stand fast in the faith. Be anchored in the gospel. Don't be moved by what's going on around you. Stand firm in Christ. You know what? No matter what the rest of the world does, we stand with the Lord. Amen? The world's falling away from God and running away from Him in a rapid rate. And it's all the more reason that you and I need to stand for the Lord in the midst of a perverse and wicked generation. Amen? We need to be salt and light. And we need to stand for God. Then he says, be brave. And I actually like this. You know what? In the little translation, you know what it means? It means act like a man. You know what? There's a few people I've counseled with that I just wanted to tell that. Dude, would you just act like a man? Would you just be a man? And what he's talking about here, be willing to take the lead. Be willing to have a passion and to blaze a trail to face the challenges that are before you. Be proactive. Be led by the Spirit. Don't be so timid in your faith all the time. Don't be so quiet about the Lord. You know what? I love to introduce my wife and my kids to people because I love them. I loved when they come to my office when I was still working. I love to introduce them. Why? Because I love my wife and I love my kids. And I'm so glad that they're a part of my family and that we're one. I love that. You know what? I love Jesus more. And how much more should we boldly let everybody know about our Savior? And he's saying, be brave. Don't be timid. Be proactive in your faith. Act like a man. And then he says, be strong. Ephesians 3 says that God would grant them to be strong in spirit. This was a call to be courageous, fearless, and spiritual leaders at the very hour when mature leadership was needed. Remember, he's writing this letter. What's going on in Corinth around them? Idolatry, sexual immorality. The church itself was lukewarm. People were falling, falling away from the Lord and serving false things. And he said, look, step up and be a leader in the midst of that. We need to step up and be leaders in the midst of what's going on in the world around us. Verse 14, I love the balance. Let all that you do be done with love. I love this because the mark of a mature believer is that he anticipates Christ's soon return and because of it he stands strong, but also that even though they stand strong, they do it in love. There are those that stand strong in arrogance. There are those that stand strong in self-righteousness. There are those who stand strong and look down on others. The Lord says, stand for me and love people. Amen? Speak the truth in love. You know what? Be a leader in your home in a loving way. Amen? Not with an iron fist. You know, the sit down, shut up, and submit woman, not real effective. Not a good plan. Right? Not God's will. But you know what? Loving and serving and laying down your life for your wife and serving her in such a way, you know, with that agape love, that man is easy to follow. That man is easy to submit to. A man who loves and serves and ministers to his wife. Mark number 10 of a mature believer is his actions are tempered with love, not selfless arrogance. Verse 15. 
I urge you, brethren, you know the household of Stephanas, that it is the firstfruits of Achaia, that they were devo- have devoted themselves to the ministry of the saints. Stephanos was the first people saved in Achaia. They were baptized by Paul. He led them to the Lord. They had become important church leaders. They had devoted themselves to the ministry of the saints. And I love this. Whenever they saw a need, they went to work to meet it. These guys, were I, I wrote down, they were addicted to ministering to people. You know, we have people like that in this church. And you bless me more than you will ever know. People who just want to serve whenever they can. They're like the people in the household of Stephanos. What a blessing. Mark number 11 of a mature believer is a servant's heart. Just as we see here in Stephanos. Verse 16. That you may also submit to such and to everyone who works and labors with us. This has become a bad word to many people. Submission. Ooh, I don't like that word, right? I don't want to submit. I want to be in charge, right? I want to grow up one day and be submitted to a whole bunch of bosses. Is that how people think when they're in school? I want to get a master's so everybody can work for me, right? The way that we define success is not is by how many people work for us, but God would define it by how many people we work for, amen? How many people we minister to. And God's heart would be that we would be submitted. And he says, you know what? When those mature believers are in your midst, you submit to them. Be submitted to them. And I say this to people all the time who have a desire to be in ministry. A man who cannot submit or a woman who cannot submit is a man or a woman who cannot lead. If I don't know how to submit to someone else, I will never be able to lead someone else. If I cannot submit to the Lord, submit to my pastor, submit to those in authority over me, I can never lead anybody else. And Paul's heart here again is to submit to those who God has gifted them to to oversee them. Mark, Mark number 12, mature believer, a willingness to submit to those who God has placed in authority over you. Verse 17, I am glad about the coming of Stephanus, Fortutus, Achaeus, for what was lacking on your part they supplied, for they refreshed my spirit and yours, therefore acknowledge such men. These were the three men that delivered the message to Paul, the message that he got about what was going on in Corinth. And when they showed up in Ephesus, what did they do? They refreshed him. You know what? That's what ought to happen in the body of Christ. We ought to be refreshing each other in the Lord. Amen? When the people showed up, he was blessed. Can you imagine Paul? He's there in Ephesus. All this stuff's going on around him. They're calling for his head. Right? You know, kill him, kill him. Great as a goddess Diana. And all of a sudden, these three guys show up. These three believers from another church. And they sit down with Paul. And they just minister to him. And he's refreshed by the fellowship. You know what? I'm refreshed by fellowship with other believers. Mark number 13 of a mature believer is he, he is refreshed by fellowship with other believers. You know what? Are you refreshing others or draining others? Which is it? Amen? Are you refreshing people? Can I encourage you? God put someone on your heart when you're praying. Write them a note. Just tell them. Encourage them. I can't even tell you. I asked Pastor Bill. I have, I have this many letters and notes from you guys that I still pull out and read sometimes when, I, when, it's, just, when it's tough. Because you refresh me and you bless me. And we ought to all be doing that for each other. Amen? And you know what? The Holy Spirit will lead and move on our hearts when it's time to do that. We're almost done. Verse 19. The churches in Asia greet you. Aquila and Priscilla greet you heartily in the Lord with the church that is in their house. Aquila and Priscilla, who are they? They were that couple, that married couple that Paul met in Corinth originally. And they had the church in their house, and they, and they were people that worked alongside Paul, and they were people that were co-laborers in the body, and he loved them to death. And now here they are in Ephesus with a church in their house again. And you've got to love Aquila and Priscilla, this married couple serving God together. And I love that. What a blessing in the body of Christ. Mark number 14, of a mature believer. They serve God wherever they're at. Priscilla and Aquila had a church in their house in Corinth. They moved to Ephesus. They got a church in their house in Ephesus. Verse 20. All the brethren greet you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Now, this was cultural in the day in the Middle East. When they greet each other, they would kiss each other on both cheeks. And it'd be much like an exhortation for you and I today to greet each other with a holy hug. Amen? And you know what? I love to hug you guys. If you don't know that already, then you'll find out soon enough. But you know what? I pray, for, I pray for you all week, and I look forward to seeing you on Sunday. And it's like the family getting together. And when I see my family, I want to hug you. And I believe that that's warmth and affection that comes from the Lord. Because we are family, and we are one in Christ. And again, you and I should have that same heart. 
verse 21. The salutation with my own hands, own hand, Paul's. If any, now, he would dictate the letters. Many people believe because he had a trouble with his eyesight. You know how Paul talks about a thorn in his flesh? We don't know for sure what it was. Many people believe he had a vision problem from the time that the Lord blinded him on the road to Damascus that he never fully got his sight back. And he would dictate his letters and others would write it down, but he would always, most often, write the last part of the letter to make sure they knew, that who, knew who wrote it. Now look at this last exhortation. You've got to love Paul. So he's exhorting them, and look what he says. If anyone does not love the Lord Jesus Christ, let him be accursed. Is that pretty straightforward? Are there any questions about that verse? Anybody got any something? They want? I mean, the word there for accursed is anathema. And it's, a, it's the strongest word for cursing in the Bible. And it's saying if you don't love God, you are accursed. Again, these people are surrounded by idol worship. There's gods everywhere. And he's saying, if you don't love Jesus, you're accursed. Because Muhammad won't get you there. The goddess Diana won't get you there. All the idols in the world, the feng shui in your house, getting the right chi, all that stuff, not going to do you any good, amen? If you don't know God, and you can't just know about Jesus Christ, you need to know Him. Not just know about Him, not just know that He existed, but have a personal, intimate relationship with the Lord. How can you love somebody you don't know? And he says in this verse, does not love the Lord, let Him be accursed, or let Him be anathema. Jesus is the only way. Knowing about Him is not enough. We must know Him. And then he says, O Lord, come. And that word there is maranatha. Maranatha is, O Lord, come. And Paul's heart again was, love the Lord. And then he says, Maranatha. He longed for his return. Mark number 15 of a mature believer. He speaks the truth without compromise. The Apostle Paul wouldn't get along real well in a seeker-sensitive church today. He'd speak there once. Well, then again, I'd probably speak there once too. But here's the thing. Speak the truth in love, but don't water it down so people won't be offended. You know what, the most offensive thing you can do is have somebody come to church and not tell them how they can know Christ. Is there anything worse than that? I can think of nothing worse than to water it down and not give them the truth. Well, let's just, you know, let's don't offend them. You know what, if if I'm a sinner, and I am, then I need to be offended about my sin and see my need for a Savior, amen? And we all do. But we do it, we speak the truth and we speak it in love. And again, last two verses. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. You know what I love about this? How does Paul end this letter filled with exhortation and correction? Coming against them for all the compromise that they had within the church, he ends with love and grace. And I love that. Because that's the way we ought to speak to people. No matter how much we've blown it, God still loves us. You've heard me say it many times. You can take a million steps away from God, but it's only one step back. He loves you. You are His treasured possession. And you and I are to love those who are lost, who are in rebellion. We're to reach out to them. We're to reflect Christ to them. He knows that they're not walking with the Lord. Many of them who He's writing this letter to, and He still says, love and grace to you. Why? Because Paul has the heart of a pastor. Mark 16 of a mature believer He speaks not only righteous judgment, but he speaks of God's love and his grace. He has a supernatural love for others. So the 16 marks of a mature believer, number one, a heart to minister to the needs of others. May we all be more focused on outwardly than we are inwardly. Amen? Number two, sees giving as an act of worship. Desires the accountability of other believers. Desires to see the body of Christ unified submits his life and his plans to the will of God, sees trials and difficulty as an opportunity for ministry. He disciples and intercedes for those who are younger in the faith, commends others who are called, doesn't compete with them, anticipates Christ's soon return. His actions are tempered with love. He has a servant's heart, a willingness to submit to those in authority, is refreshed by fellowship with other believers, serves God wherever he is, speaks the truth without compromise, and again, speaks not only righteous judgment, but of God's love and grace. Now, that's a tall order, isn't it? And it's impossible apart from the empowering work of the Holy Spirit in your life. We must decrease that he might increase, that we might be these kinds of people. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. 
Lord, I pray that we would all be exhorted to be more like that example of a mature believer. Lord, in the way that we love others, in the way that we have a heart to reach out to the world around us, in the way that we're broken and, and just grieved by those who don't know you. Lord, that we would, again, take all that is in our hands and use it for your glory, that we would serve you wherever we are. Lord, we pray for Santa Cruz. Lord, we so desire to see trans, uh, your transforming work of your spirit in this place. Lord, may it begin in each of our hearts first. May it begin in each of our individual homes. Help the men in this room to respond to that call to be a spiritual man in their home, to lead in their homes, to lay down their lives and serve their wives. Lord, help us, Father, to begin in our homes and, and impact our workplace and impact the world around us. Lord, we love you. We praise you. We worship you. We know, Lord, without you, we can do nothing. We are so desperate for you. In Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Let's stand and close the worship song.